0: Noah, let's face it, if you go anywhere these days, you need a mask. That's right, Clint. If you go to the bank or the gym or even the store, you're going to be required to wear one for the foreseeable future.
1: If you're going to be rocking a mask, why not do it in style while celebrating the Chiefs' Super Bowl victory in the process?
0: Absolutely. Visit our friends at Noble Apparel to check out all their selections of masks that come in all styles from Frozen to Spider-Man and, of course, our defending Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs.
1: Noble Apparel is KC born and bred and their merchandise is by Chiefs fans for Chiefs fans.
0: Visit NobleApparelKC.com or check them out on Facebook today at Noble Apparel 816.
2: This is your Olympic hero and former WWE Champion Kurt Angle. And I just wanted to give a shout out to my guys Clint and Noah. When it comes to covering sports, there is no one better. And believe me, that's true. It's damn true. Gentlemen, you are the top 1%, the elite, best of the best. But to be the man, you gotta beat the man, and I'm saying, woo, I'm the man. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. You know when they talk about, they talk about the elite, the elite, you ever see the elite? You're the elite, you are the elite.
0: You are now listening to the Elite Sports Podcast, brought to you by Vermeil Wines and powered by GASN Sports, the pinnacle of hard-hitting sports talk, featuring weekly expert analysis and top-notch interviews. And now, please welcome your hosts, Noah Groniger and Clint Switzer.
1: Welcome, as always, to the Elite Sports Podcast. Clint Schweitzer and Noah Groninger joining you, as always. Noah, it's going to be a true pleasure this week on the Elite Sports Podcast to actually talk about some football. Yes, some on-field action is occurring in uh, fall camps around the country, whether that be at the SEC level. I almost said the college level. Had to stop myself there. And, of course, in the National Football League. We know in the SEC, the conference that we cover that fall camp has begun. We are um, now uh, about a week into it. We cover the Missouri Tigers on a daily basis, so we've been in on some of uh, the Eli Drinkwitz Zoom calls. We're going to have some great audio coming up about that. Noah, because it's clear from Coach Drinkwitz and the way that he's sort of been talking after each practice that he feels secure and he feels proud to be a part of the SEC where he believes the leadership – has really stepped up, and their cavalier attitude towards playing this season may just pay off for the greatest sports league in the country. Meanwhile, conferences like the Big Ten and the Pac-12 calling it a day, uh, maybe some buyer's remorse for the Big Ten. Ohio State saying, wait, not so fast. We won a season, as does Nebraska. And now, just as of uh, yesterday, uh, Penn State coach James Franklin saying, wait, 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 I don't even know that we ever even voted on this. What is going on in the Big Ten, and does the SEC come out looking kind of smelling like roses after all this. They
0: absolutely do. You mentioned fall camp uh, getting underway for schools like uh, in the SEC and the Big 12 and uh, the ACC. But, man, not only that, but they've, they're releasing schedules. They're talking about uh, stadium capacities. So they are full go, full, go, full bore into this season uh, in 2020. And you look at the Big 10, the Pac-12, yeah, they are having buyer's remorse. You hear about teams like, of course, in the NFL, the Bengals and Browns are playing. A school, uh, Ohio, is going to be playing right there. and But Ohio State not playing. So, yeah, they're like, hey, we want in this thing. Like you said, James Franklin, I don't even know if we voted on this. You're saying that we can practice. The teams that uh, are not partaking in this season can still practice even though they're not playing what sense does that make and uh, yeah some of these schools like Ohio State, Nebraska, Penn State are like hey I think we
1: want back in is there anything we can do? Uh, Yahoo Sports Pete Thamel had a, a sort of some very pointed words here this week he said with college football's initial kickoff nearly two weeks away it is impossible to ignore the impact that politics could have on the decisions looming over the sport the same vexing issues that COVID-19 have brought to the country safety concerns, school openings, and liability also shroud college athletics as it lurches forward. So basically, congratulations, Noah. Our lifelong dream has come true. Politics have infiltrated college football. It's finally happened. It's a dream come true. It
0: is. I've been longing for it for so many years. And finally, it has come true. It is here. We get to immerse ourselves in sports all the time. And now we get to bring politics in with it. So we cannot be more thankful that that opportunity has been afforded to us and that we get to delve into it uh, in this election year as well. in uh, COVID
1: elections, I'm all for it. Give me more. The raging Cajun James Carville says college football is becoming part of a culture war, which is not good from my vantage point. End quote. Wow. I, I do agree with, uh, the raging Cajun James Carv- Carville there. I'm really not familiar with his work other than from the movie old school where he played himself <laughs> in a debate scene. But, uh, talking about college football well, becoming part of the culture war and how sort of the, the media and the backlash against places reopening, businesses reopening, and sort of the opening of America in general. Now, a lot of Corona Bros have shifted their focus to college football, and now that's what we have to get shut down. But right now, the NFL is being left alone. Why is that? Are we talking about the, the colleges just because of the sheer amount of humanity? We saw schools like Michigan State and Notre Dame and North Carolina already go to online classes. so where's the distinction? If we, if we can't have in-person classes, how can we have football? Now we already know that college athletes, especially football players are treated differently than anyone else on a college campus. Is this just going to be another example of, Hey, we're playing football in Alabama. We get to play and we get to do stuff. The rest of you don't.
0: Yeah, I think so. But I also think that they're being targeted the college kids and the college football game because they are young kids. They're not fully mature. They're going to make bad decisions. And, and that could have ramifications when they're going home to parents or they're going out to bars and clubs and, uh, that are open uh, if they are in their locations. And if certain campuses are open or parts of campus are open, uh, they could spread it that way. And just those kids aren't going to make good decisions. Where in the NFL, they're making millions of dollars. They're mature. Uh, they're held responsible. There's a ton of accountability. And They've got their own giant homes that they can go back to and quarantine and just be with their family and and make the good decisions to not go out to bars and clubs unless you're a Seattle Seahawks rookie who's trying to sneak your girlfriend on by dressing her up like a Seattle Seahawks (laughs) player and uh, getting released and never seeing your NFL dream come true because you're a moron.
1: That was one of my favorite stories from all of this. We've all heard about the uh in the NBA players leaving the bubble, maybe getting food from strip clubs, you know, been there done that, but uh that was a tremendous one and something I should have thought of myself. Um guys, well, the rest of you have been, you know, active on social media sharing memes, making partisan politics part of your daily lives and just kind of not even remotely hearing opinions that are different than yourselves. Here on the Elite Sports Podcast, here at the Great American Sports Network, we have been all over the place uncovering the truths for you. We've had Jason Whitlock on the show. We've been on the road to interview Mayor Glenn Jacobs, also known as the Big Red Machine Kane. So, you know what? Your money stays in place with us, Noah, because while everybody else is out there just trying to share their opinions and get famous on social media, we've been out there hitting the ground running, full guns a-blazing. We are out there in search of the truth and getting great interviews for you, and it's no different this week because we're going to be talking with former Georgia Bulldogs coach Jim Donnan. He coached the Bulldogs for five years. Not only that, I have a little bit of a soft spot for Coach Donnan. He coached at Mizzou for uh, four seasons under Warren Powers in the early 80s. So we're going to get into all that and much more with him. Uh, Of course, uh, a a little known, small, undrafted, unheralded defensive back from his coaching days down there at Georgia named Kirby Smart is the current coach. So we're going to have to talk to him about how maybe he influenced Kirby's coaching career as the Georgia Bulldogs look to rebound and look to, towards a, maybe an SEC championship type season here in 2020. Excited to catch up with Jim Donnan. And yes, we're going to talk some SEC football, man. And that makes me happy all day, every day.
0: Absolutely. There's nothing better than that. And uh, just no, more about Kirby Smart. Are they still close today? We're going to have to ask him about that, their relationship today. Uh, does Kirby Smart invite him to practice? How how often do they talk? So it's going to be exciting to catch up with uh, former Georgia Bulldogs coach, Jim Donnett. And and you mentioned there talking politics and and people having their own takes and sharing memes. And if we are being forced to talk politics, then we're going to do it the right way. And like you mentioned, we're going to go get former Kansas City Star columnist uh, at the, their newspaper. Uh, he's been on Fox Sports, uh, now with OutKick coverage. Uh, Jason Whitlock, maybe the best journalist in America today. And then we're going to go and get the big red machines take cane. So now Knox County Mayor Glenn Jacobs. So if we're forced to talk politics, we're going to do it and we're going to do it our way and with those two guests.
1: We sure are. And not only that, we're going to be bringing you exclusive audio from uh, Eli Drinkwitz here coming up, talking about the leadership of the SEC. What's going on there? You have a dog that just infiltrated this podcast, Noah. Cooper, say hi to Cooper for me. Yeah, he is very much into politics. He
0: heard us talking about it, and he had to have his voice heard, and you heard it right there.
1: He's only, is his only existence based around viewing life through the lens of hating a president Is that where Cooper's at in his current state or has he moved on to, you know, better issues or more important things like rate, you know, rioting and and things like that. Where's Cooper at in all this?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, he's very liberal. He's very much on the left. So I get to hear about his uh, hate of the president all the time. He's, always just bothering me to go to Hobby Lobby to get new paints and uh, poster boards and picket signs that he can paint slogans on and go out and protest, whatever it may be. Right now, it's Black Lives Matter. That's a big movement for him. He's painted on our driveway. Hashtag BLM. So uh, we've just got to put up with that. He's very political. And you heard it right there, folks. Uh, If you talk dog, uh, I apologize for the horrible things that he said about the president.
1: Well, if you're a fan of an SEC team, I think you're going to like hearing from uh, Coach Eli Drinkwitz coming up. Coach Drinkwitz is—I mean—he's got a tall order. Let's let's be honest. Um, When you see the schedules come out, Missouri opens with Alabama, goes at Tennessee, and then goes at LSU. No problem for a first-year head coach uh, in the SEC that's only had one year of head coaching experience at Appalachian State. But you know what? I like Eli Drinkwitz. We've talked to Tim Brando. The sexy thing to say in the SEC is that the Mississippi schools won the off season that Mike Leach at Mississippi state and Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. Those were the hot hires, but you know what long term I'm willing to stake my reputation on the fact that Eli Drinkwitz is going to be the guy we, with you. When you see the way that recruiting's gone, you look at his age, his exuberance um, kind of what he's brought to the Mizzou program. And it's going to take a while. Uh, Missouri's not going to be knocking off Alabama and LSU this year. Uh, in fact, I've got him going three and seven, but what we do know is, Coach Drinkwitz and the rest of you SEC fans can relate to this, and I think you're going to enjoy it coming right up here. Coach Drinkwitz is very excited to be a part of this conference and is really appreciative of the leadership.
3: You know, I I, I don't know. I did say the other day in a radio interview that the SEC is the leaders in college football for a reason, and I think Greg Sankey has done an outstanding job of providing steady leadership. He's put a plan in place. He's not wavered from that plan. Uh, he said that he was always going to take his time in making decisions. He was deliberate in backing the season up to the 26th to see if a spike would occur when when students returned to campus, and would we be able to uh, navigate through that spike and continue to play football? Uh, he's been adamant in saying that you know, we, he doesn't believe the virus is going anywhere, and so it, it wasn't a matter of being able to necessarily postpone to the spring and not sure why that would be better that entails a whole lot of other issues because of the NFL and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I respect what Greg Sankey's done. I respect the leadership of, of uh, you know, our administration here and I'll say the rest of the SEC coaches have done an outstanding job of being on the same page, uh, implementing the things that they've been asked to do from our conference in order to give us the best possible opportunity to play. Would it benefit us if there was one singular voice for the entire uh, college football world y'all are trying to get me on Twitter on that one so I don't I don't know if I want to say that one way or the other but I will say I'm extremely proud of Greg Sankey I'm proud to be associated with the SEC uh, and I'm proud of the way that they've handled uh, this situation regardless of how it turns out I, I can't believe we're looking at our watch on August 12th and, and we've got people that are saying we're not playing football on September 26th like I I mean, that's like calling a. That's like the St. Louis Cardinals canceling the the doubleheader on Sunday because it's forecasted to rain. And we're talking about it being on Wednesday. I mean, that's just crazy to me.
1: Well, there you go. Noah, if you're a fan of an SEC team, why wouldn't you look at Coach Drekowitz and say, hey, you know what? This is a guy I can respect, I can get behind, clearly on board with playing. He said he feels sorry for fans, coaches, players from the Big Ten. Sorry, no season for you. Yeah, you look at his offensive
0: prowess, the strategy that he brings on that side of the ball, and you mentioned uh, him hitting the recruiting trail early and hard, and they have done great there, so really positive things looking ahead for the Missouri Tigers and head coach Eli Drinkwitz.
1: Now again, I don't think it's going to be fair to judge any coach based on the 2020 season. In fact, I'm considering it just throwing an asterisk by it and saying, hey, we'll be able to judge what happens on the field. We're going to crown an SEC champion in mid-December, and we're going to, I guess, at some point, crown a national champion. But I still say that we don't judge these coaches based off what happens this season, unless something insane happens, like coaches are lying about COVID results and some outbreak, some, you know, it'd have to take something astronomical, a scandal. Other than that, the results on the field, Noah, to me, that's an asterisk. That is not what we judge these coaches by. It's certainly not the first-year coaches, uh, Sam Pittman, Uh, And, and of course, uh, Mike Leach and and Lane Kiffin at the Mississippi schools. Agree or disagree?
0: Uh, maybe disagree a little bit. Uh, I could see Sam Pittman if they lo- they're losing every game and he's looking just completely lost out there. That could be the one outlier where they're like, you know what, we weren't really thrilled with this hire. I know it's COVID. You lost every game. You look lost. Uh, Felipe Franks wasn't the right transfer for us. He's not uh, playing well. Just maybe we just fire you and there's a nice candidate out there that we like better and let's just reset this thing. Uh, going into 2021.
1: They've already had three head coaches in the last four years. Think about it this way. We're making a film, right? We're finishing up work on our Saturday Supremacy documentary, which started in uh, late 17, late in that season. We went to Arkansas. Brett Bielema was their coach that day. He got fired. Chad Morris comes in, a year and a half fired. Sam Pittman. So basically in four years, three head coaches at Arkansas, and I don't think they're going to be, they're going to do much with Sam Pittman this year, even if they go 0-10, which quite frankly, I've predicted them to do. They and Vanderbilt, I see going 0-10 on the season. I think these schools are going to smell blood in the water with those two. Anyone that's got them on the schedule knows that that's their chance at uh, getting a conference win, and it's going to be really hard for those schools to rise above. Well, you guys already know that I'm pretty much listening to podcasts or music constantly, which means I have to have a good pair of earbuds. So whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to. Not what your roommate, neighbor, significant other, or children are listening to. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds, but before you drop hundreds of dollars on a pair, check out wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of other premium wireless earbuds on the market, and that they sound just as amazing as other top audio brands you know. The newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds are their best one yet, with 6 hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. They have been an absolute game changer for me, especially in the gym. Unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet, with no dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. The company was co-founded by Ray J and celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Melissa Etheridge, Brandy, J.R. Smith, Mike Tyson, and Rich the Kid are obsessed with Raycon. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order now at buyraycon.com/musicmania. That's buyraycon.com/musicmania for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Again, that's buyraycon.com/musicmania we got to go to our interview this week, which is with former Georgia head coach. He coached at uh, Marshall as well. That's where he was winning a national championship when he went to coach the Georgia Bulldogs. It is Jim Donnan. Jim, welcome to the show, my friend. How's everything going? Doing good. You coached here at Missouri uh, from 81 to 84 and would be a part of Missouri's last bowl team for 17 years. That is absolutely uh, unbelievable. That that could be the case. Coached under Warren Powers. What what was your time like uh, here at, at Missouri, coaching in Columbia?
2: You know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was, uh, you know, kind of up and down. Uh, you know, when our offense was good, our defense wasn't, and when our defense was good, our offense wasn't. But uh, we had some huge wins. You know, we beat Oklahoma twice, which had uh, you know was was big for us, and uh, almost beat Nebraska. Uh, two times really almost doesn't count but that was when they had the twins and I mean the triplets and they were really good but uh I enjoyed the town Um, I made a lot of lifelong friends enjoyed working with uh Warren and the staff and you know we had some good coaches on that staff Carl Reese ended up being a really big prominent defensive coordinator around the country and uh And I enjoyed also uh, getting to know Norm Stewart and his wife, uh, Virginia, uh, built a relationship with them. So it was uh, four of of the best years I've ever had as far as off the field and on the field. And met a lot of good players and uh, high school coaches in the state, which helped me recruit uh, after I left Missouri. And uh, just fond memories, very fond memories.
0: Well, from 85 to 89, your offensive coordinator uh, for Oklahoma with players like uh, Troy Aikman, Jamel Holloway, Spencer Tillman. Uh, in the other side of the ball, you had Brian Bosworth. Uh, take us back to those years and winning a national championship with Barry Switzer.
2: You know, it was like uh, just something out of a fairy tale. Uh, I was in a situation there in Missouri where Woody wouldn't offer taking over and, you uh, offered, offered me a chance to stay. And... Uh, Excuse me a minute here. I oh, you're fine. Up. Yeah, you're mm-hmm.
0: good.
2: So, so, but anyhow, uh, Missouri was, uh, you know, in a state of flux, and they had offered me a job to stay, and I also had a chance to go to Penn State. And I'm not, dra- uh, uh, you know, name dropping here, but I did have a very good opportunity at, at all those places. But, uh Fortunately for me, Mac Brown played for me at Florida State. And uh, he was the offensive coordinator there. And he and uh, Charlie Sadler, another guy who had coached with me in Missouri, recommended me to Switzer. And, you know, Coach Switzer wanted to keep throwing the ball a little bit because he had Troy. It was his freshman year. And uh, we added some things in there. and We're going pretty good. And then Troy broke his leg. And we had to go to the wishbone. and because we didn't have anybody else that could really run that offense. So, uh, all of a sudden, we uh, we lost that Miami game after Troy went down, but we went on a really big run there and won 28 straight Big A games, won the national championship, and really had a good run going. And as far as the players, just uh, a lot of Hall of Fame guys, Keith Jackson, Tony Casillas, Brian Bosworth, Ricky Dixon, just a phenomenal group of players. And, a lot of good offensive linemen to go along with the with the backs we had. You mentioned Spencer, who's made a name for himself in TV and radio, and and both Spencer and uh, Keith Jackson are tremendous humanitarians. Have done a tremendous job around working with uh, nonprofit agencies and helping, you know, minority kids. Uh, really have been tremendous throughout
1: their their uh, lifetime since they left OU. Well, talk about kind of transitioning to becoming head coach. Uh, you go to Marshall in 1990, wind up uh, being there from 90 to 95. You win a national championship, 1AA uh, championship uh, in 1994. Just what was that like for you personally to see kind of, you know, uh, your coaching acumen and the respect that you'd earned and, and being around, being a coordinator for as long as you had be rewarded with this job and then w- resulting in a national championship?
2: You know, I got a little bit uh, spoiled there in Oklahoma. We were doing so well, and my uh, son was in high school, and I really didn't want to leave. I had some opportunities uh, to go be a head coach, but
3: we were on such
2: a tear there, and had such a good uh, feel for working with Coach Switzer and, and the players we had that that I felt like uh, you know might have passed me by as far as the, the really good jobs, but. Uh, you know, uh, then Coach Switzer got out, and uh, Gary Gibbs took over, and, you know, I had a good relationship with Gary, but I felt like, uh, you know, the first shot I could take, I was going to try to get a job, and, you know, Marshall was on the brink there, you know, building a new stadium, had come back from really, as all of you know, uh, the plane crash in 71, and really had a remarkable community of people that really wanted to support us, and uh, we were able to go in and get some good Juco players and bring in some some guys that were marginal 1A players and were able to get guys like Chad Pennington and Michael Payton and Todd Don and my son, quarterbacks, that really kind of proliferated our offense. And we we had some really spectacular receivers like Troy Brown, who went on to have a great NFL career. And uh, about three or four straight tight ends that got drafted. so. Uh, But just in a nutshell, it was just to build the stadium, to build the facilities, to be the architect of all the plans was just uh, very rewarding. And then to see those kids, uh, you know, compete on a level like we did. And after I left, they didn't lose a game for two years. So it wasn't necessarily because of me, but we left them some good players, Randy Moss and, and uh, certainly Chad Pennington and those other guys. I never got to coach Randy. He was coming in the year I left. But uh, but as you mentioned, Marshall had a phenomenal run. We won more games in the 90s, our team and Coach Pruitt's, than any team in college football. And uh, we'll always remember that.
0: Well, uh, you get hired at Georgia in 1996. Just talk about that first year there getting the job and uh, having a lot of players there to work with, Robert Edwards, Hines Ward, Champ Bailey, and someone that Georgia fans might know well, current head coach Kirby Smart.
2: Yeah, you know, the the transition wasn't near as smooth as I wanted it to be. Uh, I think I spent a little bit too much time trying to raise money and build facilities instead of getting to know my club. And uh, I always look back on that first year We probably played some guys that uh, we thought were better than they were and didn't give the other guys enough shot that uh, I've always told coaches when you take that first job, and I would say this to Coach Drinkowicz. of course, it's different out there now because of the COVID, but you need to get to know your players, and I'm sure he has, but you you need to get to know them a lot quicker than you do the alumni and the fundraising and all that because uh, you didn't recruit these kids. You don't know their parents. You don't know what makes them tick. And you just can't snap your fingers and make it happen so quickly. But uh, we did make a transition after the first year and had a phenomenal second year, 10-2, and and uh, really started getting it humming. Our biggest concern here or problem, when you look back on it, is we were trying to catch up with Florida and Tennessee, who were at their zenith at that time. They both won the national championship. And we were coming off probation, and our, our numbers weren't enough to have a full Slater scholarship. So uh, even though we got in the top 15 for four straight years, we couldn't get that next niche. You know, we did beat Florida. We did beat Tennessee. But, you know, to win at the level that you need to here, you got to beat your your rivals, and we weren't doing that. As far as Kirby, uh, Kirby was just a, a fantastic uh, leader on our team, a very good uh day-to-day player he came from a background where his dad was a coach and he really worked hard at being uh, as good as he could be and then i helped him get his first job here we kind of created a job here for him and then he went on to be a fantastic defensive coordinator at alabama and it's been good for me him being here because uh even though rick was very coach rick was very nice to me uh You know, it's just a little bit different when you're going over there and seeing a guy that still calls you coach, and like Kirby does. And uh, he's been very good about letting me come around and watch and and, uh, give him my two cents once in a while. He doesn't listen to me much, but but I always like to go over there. And he's doing a a really good job of getting the kind of talent you need to get here to make that big jump. You know, he's very close, uh, got close the second year, and then uh, last year, you know, had a couple of tough losses, but uh, really has built up the facilities and everything. Very proud of Kirby.
1: We'll talk a little more about Kirby. Kind of do, when you have a player that uh, exceeds at the level that he did, um, he's an all SEC performer uh, as a defensive back for you. Um, do you, do you notice any intricacies of, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies about someone like him that you think, you know, this guy could, this guy could be a coach and, 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 Aside from that as well, does, is coach, does Kirby kind of reach out to you? How, how often does that happen, and kind of what's your relationship like now? Well, as far as
2: seeing him being a coach, you know, you figured he was going to be. His dad was a high school coach. He, he uh, really uh, was a student of the game when he played here and very cerebral guy and made a lot of plays with his, with his uh, feet and his contact, but he also – was in the right spot all the time, and that's very critical for a defensive back. That He had good speed but not great speed, but uh, he he was very good at playing free safety and playing halves coverage and coming off the hash. But as far as relationship now, uh, you know, he's got a lot of irons in the fire. I mean, he doesn't call me up that much. We do text, and we do, uh, as I mentioned in the other part, I do – uh, have a chance to go over there and watch them occasionally uh, when when uh, I can get over there. But uh, the main thing that's that been good for me is, is coaches are, are very receptive to me being around watching them and always asking me what I think about things. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I've ever helped them that much. But I learned a long time ago when Coach Fambro was a coach at, at uh, Missouri and then was retired, all the fans remember Don – not Fambro, he was at, at – uh,
1: Don Faroe.
2: Don Faroe, Don yep. Fambro was at
1: KU. That was a
2: bad yeah, bad yeah, yeah, Coach, yeah.
1: Missouri fans aren't going to like that one. No,
2: <laughs> I Coach Faroe was a mentor to me. Uh, my first year there, I did. my wife and family didn't move the whole spring, so I was around the office a lot, and he would take me back into the archives and show me old old films of him when they were running the uh, wing T back yep. in the 50s, and he would show me. He was one of the first guys to ever run a uh, uh, some type of shotgun there, and uh, it, it really was impressive. And the thing that he was able to do with me is every week that we would play a game, he would sit in the press box, and then first thing on Monday morning, when he came into office, he would give me a critique of the game. Without benefit of the tape, without benefit – of doing anything but just watching it. And it was amazing the guy in his high 70s or close to 80 years old could be that perceptive. And uh, I really learned a long time ago you need to listen to your elders. And the other thing that he told me that I think the fans would listen, would be appreciative of when we were playing KU, the end game at the end of the year. He came in and said, You know, I've coached this game for 27 years or ever how many. He said, the thing that you always got to remember is the freshest team wins. You've been playing a whole season. There's No no need to go out there and work them, overwork them, you know, lifting weights, doing all this extra stuff isn't going to help you. You need to be fresh. And, and it's going to be a, a, an emotional game, which it is. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it was a battle there every year. so. We cut back that week, and uh, I convinced Coach Powers of it and uh, had a big win. We lost to him a couple times when we should have won, too, but those kind of values that Coach uh, Faroe instilled in me were were very good, and it helped me become a head coach, too. Another thing he said, he would come out and watch practice and walk around, and he was big on symbolism, on on how the players reacted to how you were talking and everything. And – we were having a big meeting there with uh, the whole team at the end of practice. And I noticed that uh, Coach was watching and listening to Warren Powers. And after it was over, he waited and walked in with me. He said, look, you need to tell those other coaches. When Coach Powers is talking, they don't need to be in the background going over their scripts and talking about what they're going to do. Sends the wrong message to the team. If it's big enough for, for him to tell the team, it's big enough for the coaches to listen to. And I've always remembered that too. I mean, just little things like that.
0: Yeah, and Coach, uh, before we got to ask about uh, the '97 game against Mississippi State, Uh, you drove a steamroller into practice. uh, Told your players, "We're either going to be the steamroller or the pavement." So, where did that idea come from, and who is your steamroller connection?
2: You know, we were trying to make that transition, like you talked about, between '96 and '97. We'd won a couple games, but I kept telling our our players, "We're either going to make this." Make this move or not, it's like a steamroller. You're either going to be the steamroller or you're going to be the pavement. Let people keep rolling over you. And that was kind of a little issue that we had and we were talking about. You know, you always want some kind of little thing to motivate them. So I was going over to the training table at lunchtime and they were doing some uh, paving in a parking lot over there. And I went over to this guy that was running it and I said, look, about 3.30 today, could you drive this up to the fence right here? That's where our practice fields were. And then let me get on and drive it in show me how to do it. (laughs) And he said, what are you doing, Coach? And I explained to him, he said, yeah, I'll be glad to do it. So I told all the the coaches, I said, when we start stretching today, I want you to turn them the other way where they can't see the fence. And I'm going to drive a damn steamroller in there, and I'm going to see how they react. So 3:30, we got up there, and this guy showing me all these sticks and everything. And I said, "Look, I just want the basic deal. I don't want to go fast. I just want to get this sucker in there." So I he opened the gate. I drove it in there, and then the players turned around and they saw it, and they came running down there. And it was just like a, you know, it wasn't anything that I want to take credit for, but it really got the point across that I felt like we we were ready to get going and be the steamroller, and our players reacted. And I know you had Coach Cheryl on here, who's a dear friend yeah. of mine and a good guy, but we ended up beating them 47 to nothing that day, and I don't know if it was a steamroller or what, but it was, it was a great deal
1: for us to get that win. Coach, you, made, you won four straight bowl games at Georgia, which was unprecedented. That's something to really, I think, hang your hat on during that time. Talk about the University of Georgia and kind of what makes it special because it has a lot of class. Athens has a lot of sophistication. It's the empire state of the South, Georgia is. There's, you know, it's, there's all the resources and, and, and money that you could, could ever want. I think a few years after you were gone, they made the stadium into 93,000 seats or, or around that. Just talk about Georgia, kind of what makes it special and kind of your time there and what was special about being in Athens during that time.
2: Well, first of all, it's a big state. As you mentioned, you know, having the metropolitan uh, Atlanta and then all the contiguous counties there. I mean, just – and particularly after the Olympics, you had a lot of people move in here. I mean, Jimmy Payne uh, – I mean, uh, they they did a great job getting the – you know, Billy Payne getting the Olympics here. but you know, high school football is huge here. I mean, it's a year round type deal. I mean, they have spring practice and they have a lot of big schools and they have a lot of small town communities like, uh, central Missouri does, you know, where everybody rolls up the sidewalks on Friday night and watch you play. But most of these kids grow up on to play for Georgia. I mean, Georgia tech certainly gets their share, but nothing like Georgia gets. And, uh, you got a lot of uh, people in the state that, that, after they graduate from here, uh, live in the state, and that's their school. And the thing that sticks out in my mind, the first interview I had with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the, the, not only the sports guy came there, but the, the editor of the paper in general came, and uh, he made a statement. He said, Coach, I just want to tell you, he said, we've got the Braves, we've got the Falcons, we got the Hawks. You know, he talks about all of that. He said, but the number one issue for most of our fans is Georgia football. And uh, it's still very com- competitive now. You know, most people have these websites and all, and newspapers aren't near as, as big now that everybody's got the internet. But uh, Georgia's a special job. Uh, I was fortunate to, to have it. Uh, helped me get in the Hall of Fame. Most of my stuff is from, that I did was from uh, Marshall as far as winning, although we had a pretty good record here. But I think it's just a, a, the kind of job that any coach would aspire to have.
0: Well, you mentioned it there. You guys have the Falcons, the Braves. But when it comes to uh, Athens and just the, the state of Georgia, the number one thing is the Georgia Bulldogs. And there weren't a lot of pro sports in the South back in the day. And so there seems to be this tight bond and connection with the town and fans to the universities, especially the football programs. And the SEC slogan is, it just means more. Why does it mean more to the SEC and its fans in the South?
2: You know, I don't know that it does. I mean, I guarantee you, when I was coaching in Missouri, it meant meant a hell of a lot to me. Uh, It meant a lot to Missouri fans. And uh, I think getting in the SEC has been big for Missouri as far as helping their overall athletic program with all the money it's bringing in. And, uh, you know, I think A&M getting in, too, has helped uh, broaden out our our, uh, footprint in the Texas. But uh, as far as meaning more, you know, uh, you've got to just look at the the proofs in the pudding when you see the amount of guys getting drafted in SEC compared to the other conferences, Uh, the success that these uh, SEC teams have had in bowls, uh, playoffs, all that, you know. uh, As good as Oklahoma has been the last few years, they've had a hard time competing with these SEC teams and with, uh, you know, Clemson, who I feel like has modeled their program a lot like uh, Coach Saban. You know, Dabo has a lot of ties back there to uh, to Alabama. But I would say this. If you just look at all the coaches in the SEC that have a a background with Coach Saban, whether it's uh, Muschamp or Pruitt or – Keep on going with Kirby all the way down. There's just a lot of coaches that know that footprint and uh, know that way to do things. Jimbo Fisher out there at AM and now, and uh, just relentless recruiting. Uh, high, you know, high intensity practices. Uh, Compet competition's very important. They play a lot of young players, and uh, it's pretty evident that uh, that 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 kind of playbook's working.
1: Well, the balance of power has certainly shifted in the SEC. When you were there, uh, the East was really um, kind of the power at that time. You had uh, Peyton Manning and the Tennessee Volunteers with Philip Fulmer there. You had Steve Spurrier and the, and the Florida Gators that you had to try to get around, where this is, of course uh, – prior to to Nick Saban getting to Alabama and them kind of resurging. How difficult was it just during that time, not only competing with the Auburns and the Ole Misses and the Alabamas and LSUs to the west, but getting around Florida and Tennessee in the east?
2: Yeah, you know, I mentioned that a little bit earlier, that they were at their zenith. Both of them won national championships, and also our number one recruiting uh, nemesis in South Georgia is Florida State, which is right across the – and uh, the border there. So Bobby Bowden had a role in there in the nineties too. And uh, they won. So three of the five years that I was a coach, one of those three teams won the national championship and, and Georgia tech won ACC that time. Uh, coach O'Leary had some really good players. So, you know, it's just hard to rebuild overnight, any program, wherever you go. Yeah. That's why you see, uh, you know, coaches very seldom get these plum jobs the first day, uh, You know, you got to – it's a reason that a guy's been let go and you got to take over. And I think uh, from my standpoint, we just tried to model our program a lot like what we did at Oklahoma as far as the standards of the speed and quickness that we felt like we needed to have not only size, but we needed speed and quickness on defense. We really got some really good defensive players like uh, Marcus Stroud and uh, Richard Seymour and Champ Bailey. Uh, Just uh, all pro type players, and then uh, you add that with some of the linemen we got that were drafted on offense too. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of these good running backs. So uh, the main thing to build a team is I don't care if you're Grantland Rice or Tom Osborne or who you are. Players win games and players lose games. You got to get players. Acquisition of talent's the number one thing, and. You got to build that talent to compete with who you got to beat. Like Missouri right now, they got to beat Georgia in their division. I I mean, you got. If I'm Eli talking to my coaches, when you're looking at these players, can this guy beat Georgia? I mean, that's basically what they got to do. Just like LSU did when they built their thing up, saying, "Can this guy beat Alabama?" And they felt like they had to change their system and go to a more passing game and got you know really tremendous quarterback in there in Joe Burrow but you always look at your program where it is how you're going to go to get where you got to got to get down the road so I think right now coach uh, Odom got close but uh, lost a lot of close games I mean uh, you got to win some of those and that really hurt them you know Uh, and the other thing that Concerned me. He was a defensive coordinator-type coach, but their defense let him down so many times over his uh, – and I'm not bagging on him, but uh, if they'd had any kind of defense three of those first four years, I think that would have been a lot better, especially when you got a guy like Drew Locke. I mean, the the one year when Dooley came in there, they did okay. But then last year, their defense really started to get better, but their offense, you know, hurt them. So uh, – but – You know, I think they made the change, and let's see what happens.
0: Absolutely, Coach. And just going back to your time and and just looking at the SEC now, and whether it was the sights, the sounds, the fans, the total atmosphere, what were some of your favorite road environments you experienced in the SEC?
2: Well, they weren't a whole lot of fun from the standpoint (laughs) of just going in there and trying to play. But, you know, I always try to tell our teams we're going to kind of go in there late, wait to the last minute, and try to ambush the other team, you know. And we had a pretty good road record, but uh, certainly, you know, we won twice at Auburn, which is very difficult. And three years we played there, we won uh, two times and uh, lost another one in overtime. But uh, I, I think LSU is is a place that uh, just has a lot of special, uh, you know, memories to me because we were both ranked very highly and we played them in 98 the year after uh, we had such a big year and we were, like 4-0, and and they had Marshall Falk and all those guys. But our freshman quarterback, Quincy Carter, goes in there and hits 15 in a row there to start the game. That's hard to do in the parking lot. But uh, just an unbelievable crowd and atmosphere down there at LSU. And those people start dress, getting you know, having a few pops there early in the day. And you start going to the game, and you, you see a lot of different things on the way. I mean, that's the only place I've ever been mooned going to a game you know and I'm talking about men and women mooning your ass it's pretty unbelievable but uh the other other great venue which I'll compare to the Oklahoma Texas game everybody knows about playing in Dallas but similar situations always playing in Jacksonville against Florida both teams got half the stadium uh it's just an unbelievable atmosphere and uh, a lot of good memories there we we were able to win one time but Uh, You know, the fan base for both teams, a lot of them go down there and spend a week, you know, take a vacation. Uh, You know, there's been talk about bringing it back to campus, but uh, I don't think the alumni would be very happy with that.
1: Yeah, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party is special indeed. And we've uh, just completed our trip around the SEC back in 18. We were at uh, every game, every stadium experiencing it all. So to be able to go back with you and kind of go through your career and kind of your part of this has been just truly an honor coach thanks so much for joining us today and taking us back and uh you know as a as a Missouri fan as someone that covers the Missouri Tigers we appreciate your time here and the perspective you've given us on Eli Drinkwitz a guy we're really impressed with and uh you know it's got to be difficult though coming and taking a new job and all these restrictions and zoom meetings and that's that's going to be difficult for a for a new coach he's like my age 36 years old so it's got to be tough
2: yeah I'm sure it is but it is what it is. It's no different from anybody else. You know how you handle adversity is going to be the real deal here. Hopefully, we can get where we can play some games. You got to be real careful here and go over the protocol. And uh, I was hoping to have a t- chance to just tell you this one quick story here Absolutely. about the Zuri fight song, ah, which I think the uh, fans are like. You know, we used to have the deal where every uh, for every summer we would go to the. Uh, have a kickoff luncheon with all the Missouri fans there, right there in in Columbia. And part of the deal is, if you had a new coach, the coach was supposed to lead them in the fight song. And uh, and I told Larry Bechtel, who was offensive line coach, I said, Larry, you're gonna have to lead them in the Mizzou fight song now. And he said, oh, they don't. They're not gonna ask me to do that. I'm said, I'm telling you, there's gonna be a lot of people there, and you're gonna embarrass yourself if you don't know that fight song. He said, Ah, they won't ask me to do it. So we get there, and Warren introduces everybody. And then the MC said, Okay, we're going to get Coach Larry Bechtel to lead us in the Missouri fight song. I'm standing beside him right there. And he said, How's it go? I said, It's fight, Tigers fight for Old Mizzou. <laughs> yeah. So you know how it goes like that. Yeah. So, you know, with a lot of Zoom going quickly, you know, he gets up there and goes, Fight, Tigers Fight, <laughs> and everybody's waiting for him to go fast, you know. But he doesn't—he doesn't know what the song is. It's the worst rendition, first start I've ever heard of. Fight, Tigers fight for all of us. We used to sing that after every win. I, I still remember it. What a thrill for me! And I appreciate you guys having me today. I'm talking a lot, but I don't get to talk much anymore. And I want to make sure everybody in Missouri knows you got something special out there. Uh, every coach that ever coached there, or every p- kid that ever played there, takes a lot of pride in, busy- in being a Missouri Tiger. And I promise you, I take a lot of pride that I was able to coach there.
1: Well, that means so much to us just as uh, you know, media here and uh, fans growing up that – being associated now with the SEC and uh, having more, you know, limelight with the SEC network and all the things that have happened. uh, You know, Missouri's in a good spot, and you being there was a big part of it and a big part of the era that helped lead to um, the era that I came into, which was Corby Jones, Larry Smith, and uh, Devin West and all those great players in the 90s. So you're a big part of the history here, Coach. one,
2: One more thing about the Mizzou Journalism School. Yep. Pat Forty went there. Yes. Uh, and when, when I got uh, – when I was in coaching, he was uh, he was working for the Missourian. And when I got in coaching, he came and told me, he said, Coach, when I was uh, doing stories back then, you always treated me right. You didn't uh, try to embarrass me in front of anybody. And I, I didn't even remember that. And then Craig Silver, who was in charge of the SEC, the producer of the SEC Game of the Week, was at Missouri there in the journalism school is now one of the most predominant producers in all of college sports. And we talk about his days at Missouri every time he comes and does a Georgia game.
1: Yeah, it's a special place for sure. And Pat's son, Mitchell, just graduated from journalism school there too, and he works for PowerMizzou.com. So keep it in the family there. The lineage continues. It's great stuff. All right, I enjoy coach, being
2: with you guys.
1: Coach, we, we appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Stay safe and stay healthy, my friend. All the best All right. to your wife. You guys will be in our thoughts and prayers for sure. All right, thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. Some great candid stories from Jim Donnan from his coaching days, whether it be at Missouri, at Marshall, and then certainly with the Georgia Bulldogs, where he was able to coach for five years in the SEC, and now here we are 20 years later. And one of his protégés, one of his – players Kirby Smart has taken over the reins and he is impressed to say the least they've uh, at least had some conversations and and talked and you know whenever you have a coach like Kirby Smart that emerges you have to go back and look at who they played for and that is a big part to me uh, probably what makes them a head coach today and you know he's got to go back and look at the way he was coached under Jim Donnan during his days at Georgia and now seeing that come to fruition where do you have Georgia kind of in the mix here the power rankings man is it easy enough to say Alabama number one, I got Georgia number two in this thing and I got them going eight and two. What say you about the Georgia Bulldogs, man, or or, our, our, our dog nation fans are going to want to know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Like you said, Alabama number one, of course, but uh, looking at their schedule and just how things are going to play out for them, I could definitely see them at two or three right there at the top. So um, I agree with you on that uh, because this schedule is so different. You don't have those non-conference games. It's a, it's, just conference games, so like you mentioned earlier, just Vanderbilt and Arkansas are going to find it really tough to find a win in there. And uh, teams like Georgia, they're not going to need that easy non-conference schedule to find these wins because they're a premier program. And when it comes to teams uh, that, that they're going to play that are lower down in the SEC, they're going to just have that much more focus on those games and not going to let anything sneak up and bite them. So uh, I could definitely see Georgia finishing in the top three easily.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, Noah, we have some really big shows still to come here on the Elite Sports Podcast as we launch headfirst into the football season, whatever it may bring. Regardless, we have some tremendous interviews already in the can coming up for you guys. We got our good friend, former Kansas City Chiefs cornerback, former Charger as well, Brandon Flowers coming up. Uh, We have an interview on the horizon with none other than one of the great New York Giants of all time, Leonard Marshall, former Patriot, former... LSU Tiger Jarvis Green going to be joining us as well coming up. We have a lot of stuff on the horizon, man. Excited for all of it. That's what you get here on the Elite Sports Podcast. And that's what we're going to continue to bring you as the season gets underway. There's something special about the idea that we're talking football with Coach Eli Drinkwitz every day at Mizzou, for instance. That's the that's the team we cover here in the state of Missouri. So we're on those calls. We're involved in, in the on-field Uh, on the on-field acumen that's going on at Missouri. Of course, we're not able to watch it, but we we get to hear from Coach. So we're talking about stuff that's happening on-field. NFL training camps are going. In general, life a little more optimistic for you there, Noah? I know there for a while, you know, we were both kind of battling depression and thinking about just, um, you know, sealing off our doors and, and bunkering down for the next two years. But we may actually get a football season.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's got to be more optimistic. I mean, we're getting some NBA playoffs, and and uh, while it's a little weird to watch, it's still nice to see, uh, and we're getting some really good games out of it as well. So I'm excited for this college football season. Hopefully it can finish and we can crown a national champion. Uh, I'm still a little uh, uncertain about that, but it's definitely going to start Uh, And these giant programs uh, and conferences, you just got to feel like they're going to do everything in their power to make it through and finish and crown a national champion. So I do have a little more hope than uh, I previously had now that they're talking about stadium capacity. Uh, So we're moving forward here. We've got schedules and the NFL is going off seemingly without a hitch. Uh, If you're watching hard knocks uh, in Los Angeles with the Rams and Chargers, uh, you saw Seth Ryan, the son of Rex Ryan, uh, tested positive for COVID-19. He had to go home, but a few days later, they announced it was a false and so he was back into work. And uh, so it looks like everything's going off without a hitch so far. We haven't uh, had any games yet, so it's all uh, kind of remains to be seen. But I'm excited. I'm optimistic. And man, let's get some football in
1: can't wait to do it man guys hit that subscribe button on apple podcasts google play stitcher or spotify that is where you can check out this podcast google podcast man they just sort of reformed uh they it was google play now it is google podcast they have a whole new format and our show is available on it so if you have an android you've got google podcasts already on there just download the show leave a star rating it's what helps keep us rolling Head over to the website, gasnsports.com. Up to the minute, breaking news, articles, interviews, everything is there archived on our website, gasnsports.com. We can't thank you guys enough for joining us. We will catch you back next week once again here on The Elite. Bring a spectacular piece of Napa Valley right to your doorstep today with Vermeil Wines. Former legendary
0: Chiefs and NFL coach Dick Vermeil started Vermeil Wines back in 1999 but his undying devotion to bringing a taste of Napa Valley to the masses actually goes back generations.
3: Well, you know, it started as a hobby of making 150 to 200 cases of, of Cabernet, Jean-Louis Vermeil Cabernet, my dad's name and my great-grandfather's name.
1: Vermeil wines are grown in Coach Vermeil's hometown of Calistoga, California, at the top of Napa Valley, where the vineyards are over 100 years old. Browse all the signature wine options or become
0: an official member today at Vermeilwines.com.
1: Choose from 3, 6, or 12 bottles and enjoy a 15% savings with shipments each February, May, and September. You'll also get access to exclusive offerings and events such as virtual wine tastings with Coach Vermeule himself, as well as member-only wines. Try the Signature Club where you get one
0: case per year, a 20% savings, four bottles of each Cabernet. These are the
1: highest-rated wines at $1 shipping all year. To join, visit vermeilwines.com now or call 707-254-9881.
0: Use promo code ELITE for $1 shipping on three plus bottles of wine. This will also apply to your first wine club order if you mention ELITE at sign up.